UK. Do you remember that? What were some things you did to prepare yourself from rolling uh, from uh, 1999 to 2000? You got a box of candles? All right. Anybody go to the bank and make a little withdrawal? Maybe got out a little cash because we were told that the banking systems may be down for a few days. Didn't have <laughs> All right. You, you sound like some people I heard, you know, that, that actually lived through the Great Depression said they didn't know anything was happening. They were poor before it and poor after it, poor during it. Didn't know that it actually happened. But that, that really is amazing that next year, when we're in 2025, that will have been a quarter of a century since we rolled over from 99 to 2000. Do the young people look at those of us who were born in the 19-whatevers? Do they look at us as ancient? I wonder. You know, in my childhood, and many of you, same thing, I knew a lot of senior adults that had 1,800 birthdays. You know, some of your parents... Uh, were probably born in in the 1800s. My grandfather was born in 1899. And I looked at that and thought, wow, those people with those 1800 birthdays, they're just really ancient. And so now I wonder, as we're progressing into this millennia, if the younger people look at those of us with the 19-whatever birthdays like we're ancient. Do they? I don't know. Maybe not. Or maybe they do. Let's not ask, okay? Nevertheless, having said all of that, it is really good to see you tonight. I was just speaking to Maggie before the service started, and maybe somebody else, and I just remarked on how it seemed strange to have a Monday Christmas and a Monday New Year. Has that caught anybody else into this sort of weird experience the last couple of weeks. It has me. I don't understand that, but it has. I know we've had Monday Christmases and New Year's celebrations before, but this has just really seemed off to me. Whatever. Here we are. It's Wednesday night, and it is really good to see you. Somebody has something good to share. Who is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, she's talking about her brother who had heart trouble earlier in the week, last week, wasn't it? And uh, everything is in good shape. They, they did a stint, though, right? And he's home now. Praise the Lord for that. Who else? You got a new daughter-in-law Saturday night. And, you know, I asked them Sunday morning why they didn't hold off a day so that they could have gotten married on one, two, three, one, two, three. You know. Oh well. Who else? That that's good news though. Yes, Miss Donna. Still in the hospital, but on the milder side. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Well, you know, Amanda, if that's God's will, he'll work all that out. 
but we're just going to rejoice that you're going to be staying right here, okay? Is that all right? Okay, very good. Melissa, I saw your hand. Amen. Anyone else? Everybody got what you wanted for Christmas? All right. Well, very good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, I'm just going to lead us in prayer. And I know you'll pray with me as we bow our heads together. And then we'll get started with our content tonight. Father, I want to thank you for all the good reports that we've heard tonight, how, Lord, you have been mindful in our lives, how you have intervened in health situations and uh, contemplation about moving. And, Father, just so many ways we see your hand uh, so active in our lives and our affairs. And we just praise you, Lord that you're a God who cares deeply for each and every one of us. Thank you, Father, that we have this new year to live in, full of possibilities. And, Father, tonight as we continue uh, to study about your word and understand more fully how we received it, I pray that that would be one of our commitments for this year ahead that we would be people of your word, that we would listen to it more, read it more, memorize it more, and Father, above all things, that we would practice it more. Uh, Lord, we're reminded of that analogy that James uses in his letter about the man who looks in the mirror and then forgets his reflection. Lord, when we look into the perfect mirror of your word, I pray that we see you for who you are and us for who we are. And then, Father, help us not to forget how you compel us to change our lives and to commit our ways to you. I just pray, God, that you would be honored and glory, uh, that you would receive the glory from our time together tonight. And I ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and amen. Before we start talking more about how we got the Bible, I do want to start with one verse of Scripture that is a very important verse when you think about the Bible and what our commitment to the Bible should be because of what it is. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and I want you to look with me briefly tonight at verse 12, Hebrews 4, 12. Uh, You know this verse, the Bible says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Go ahead and read verse 13 with me. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Just wanted to start there tonight before we jump into some of the historical things that we'll be looking at, not only tonight, but the next few Wednesday nights. Just to say to you, don't let this study bog you down in, you know, the chronology and the history of everything to the place that you don't receive God's Word for just what it is. God's Word is the Word of the living God, and because it is, it's it's alive itself. Don't miss that. Scripture says, for the Word of God is living and active or living and powerful. We've all seen throughout, of our, throughout all of our lives how, how God's Word lives. 
isn't it an amazing thing how you can be in a systematic plan of reading and studying the Word of God, maybe something that you chose to begin at the first of the year, perhaps a chronological reading through the Word of God or an intense study of a certain book, but you're going through a situation in life for which you need direction, for which you need God to reveal Himself and His will to you, and then all of a sudden you open up your Bible and God meets you in His Word and gives you exactly what you need for the exact time that you need it. Have you ever experienced that? I think we all have. I'm reminded of a dear friend of mine who gave his life to the Lord after he had had a terrible accident in a factory where he worked. And after he'd gone through several surgeries and he was starting to, to wake up and, and recognize more things and able to see and read, he reached over to his bed stand next to him in the hospital, pulled out a Gideon Bible. And in parentheses, let me say tonight, aren't we thankful for the ministry of Gideons? Uh, I hope that you're a supporter of Gideons. That's a great way, by the way, to acknowledge a memorial or, you know, maybe if you want to do something out of gratitude for someone, send a Gideon Bible, you know, buy a Gideon Bible and send that acknowledgement to that person because there's a lot of things you can do for somebody, but when you empower a group like the Gideons to place the eternal word, you're doing something of eternal significance. But back to my friend, he reached over and just prayed a simple prayer. He said, God, I need you more than I ever have. And he, he just simply opened up the Gideon Bible at random and God led him exactly to words that he needed to read. And out of that experience, he gave his heart and his life to the Lord Jesus Christ because he had an encounter with a living word, not a dormant or a dead word, but a living word that it says about itself is, is powerful, it's sharp, He uses that beautiful illustration of the Roman dagger, the two-edged sword. That's the Roman little dagger that a Roman soldier would wear at his side, and it was sharp on both ends, not like a sword that only cuts one way. This particular instrument would cut both ways. And so the writer of Hebrews says that's the way the Word of God is. It cuts... Exactly. Either way you pull it, one way or the other, it's making its cut. It's doing its work, able to separate the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow, and a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. I'll tell you one more quick story before we jump in. Many years ago, in the old USSR, before it broke apart and uh, became what it is today, there was a a play that was written from that atheistic viewpoint that they had there to actually criticize the Word of God and Christianity and just make fun of it all. And the title of the play, you can look this up, the title of the play was Christ in Tuxedo. That was the title of the play. And in the opening scene... The lead actor walked onto the stage and to start off the play, he was to recite a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And so he steps onto the stage and he begins to recite the Sermon on the Mount in an effort to belittle the Word, to belittle Christianity, etc. But as that actor began to recite the Word of God, you know what happened to him? He fell under conviction and he began to weep publicly on that stage to the point that he cried out loud, God, 
I need you. And what was an effort for somebody to make fun of the Word of God and belittle the faith that comes from Scripture actually led that actor to faith himself. That's how powerful God's Word is. Never forget it. We talked about last week that it's not the the form that the Word comes on. It's not just the fact that it comes leather-bound and and pages. It's it's not powerful because it, it comes on other media such as electronic media, on the screen behind me, etc. That's not where the power is in God's Word. The power is in the essence of the Word itself, that it is God-breathed, that it's inspired by God. And so as we jump back into our study tonight, I just wanted to start there with you to, to talk to you about how important it is that we trust Scripture for what it is. Am I going on the screen? Do I need to restart? Okay. Well then, let's do this. There we are. Thank you, Joe. Aren't those guys up there the best? They, they really are. You know, never forget the, the people that are behind the scenes that make our experiences what they are here at Bible Baptist Church. So we are working on a timeline of Scripture, and last week we just laid down some foundations, some basics about the Word of God and uh, the, the theology, the doctrine of Scripture, how it is breathed out by God. We talked about all the different media that was used over the years for the writing down of Scripture. We talked even about the, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how powerful it is that even when they found those and those predated any other fragments or copies of Scripture that we had up to that point, when it was compared to what uh, was already translated, nothing changed, which is indicative of how God watches over not only the giving of His Word through the Holy Spirit, but how it's maintained for us. Now, we talked some about the Old Testament last week, but I want us to go back and let me add a couple of more things for you as we begin to trace this timeline, bringing us down to our English copies of the Word of God, which we will get to in another week or so. But the Old Testament, as we discussed a little bit last week, these were events that were written down in Hebrew, some portions in Aramaic, and we had that conversation how really not much of the Old Testament was written in Aramaic, but a portion or two was. And Aramaic is a derivative of Hebrew itself, but it was written down in those languages over many centuries. Now, when you think about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, meaning five books, the first five books of the Bible, what we believe is that Moses himself was inspired by God to write those books of the Bible. It's interesting when you read the book of Exodus that there is this encounter between the Lord and Moses where God tells Moses to write what he's saying down in a book. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book, that's a portion of that verse. And then in Exodus 24, verse 4, a portion of that verse says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So, within the Pentateuch, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we find reference 
to God speaking to Moses and saying to Moses, write this down, put it in a book. And so even within those five first books of the Bible, we see indication of God telling Moses to write in a book. Other Old Testament writers also, like Moses, were inspired by God and they are an assortment of different types of people. They're leaders, they're kings, they're prophets. Let's start that in reverse. Let's start with the easy one. Who are some of the prophets that write what becomes Old Testament books? Isaiah, of course. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, what? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. You know, we can go right through the list. You understand you have prophets, major prophets, and minor prophets. I've said this to you a lot. What's the difference between the major and the minor prophets? The size of the book. That's right. I like to put it like this. The major prophets were the long-winded preachers, like Brother Allen sometimes. And the minor prophets were the short-winded preachers. By the way, someone once came to me and said, you know, you need to preach sermonettes. You know what I said? I can't do that because if I preach sermonettes, I grow Christianettes. (laughs) Teasing. But you get that. Major prophets wrote the longer books of the prophets. The minor prophets are relatively shorter than those. Then who would be some kings? That David, Solomon. David and Solomon would be kings who would write significant portions of Old Testament scriptures. David would write significant portions of which particular Old Testament book? The Psalms. Many of the Psalms are entitled a Psalm of David. And then, of course, you know that Solomon, being the wisest man to have ever lived, because God told him, Solomon, you asked for it, I'll give it to you. Solomon asked for wisdom, and God made him the wisest man who ever lived, and in turn he wrote which two books of the Old Testament? Yeah, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and probably Song of Songs. Yes. So you have prophets, you have kings. And then could you think of who would be a leader? We've already mentioned one. Moses and Samuel. That's right. Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra was, was a prophet and a priest. But Nehemiah, yes, was a leader that brought the, uh, the, the captives from Babylon and he led them there in Jerusalem. So you've got different types of Old Testament writers. Some were leaders, some were kings, some were prophets. But again, God would use each of these men to write His Word. Remember what we talked about last week? It, it's not like a direct dictation. In other words, God is not using these men as human typewriters. But He is inspiring them with His Word. And so, does the personality of David, for instance, show out in the book of Psalms? You better bet it does. I mean, you you see David's personality, his heart for God in Psalms. You see David at his very high moments when things were going really, really well. And then you see David at his lowest moments when he's asking, Lord, have you forsaken me? Have you hidden your face from me? So you see David exhilarated and you see David also depressed. And so it's not like, again, that God is using these writers as human typewriters, but He is pouring His Spirit into them, pouring out His Word, 
their personalities, their situations in life, the things historically that are going on around them, those all show out in Scripture. But all these different people inspired by God to write His Word. Uh, These writings that become what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible were known as the Law, the Prophets, and the writings, or the law, the prophets, and David, or simply the law and the prophets. Paul referred to the Old Testament and the revelation of the Old Testament as the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament. Notice what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation to talk about that verse, but I just want you to see what Paul shares with us there. He refers to the Hebrew Bible there as the Old Testament. And then Ezra, we mentioned him a moment ago, who's a priest and a scribe. A lot of Old Testament scholars feel like it was the work of Ezra to collect and arrange the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible in about 450 B.C. In in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8, Scripture talks about this finding of the book of the law and how Ezra brings it out and they build a wooden platform for him. You can read the story in Nehemiah 8 and there Ezra stands on the platform. Scripture says that he reads the law and then later the book of the law. But here's what we know, the Old Testament, and I'll talk more about this term in a moment, was canonized by the time of the Lord Jesus. So by the time Jesus is on the earth, the Old Testament as we know it, from Genesis at the beginning to Malachi at the end, the Old Testament as we know it was brought together. It was canonized. That word canon means how something measured, measures up spiritually. And so it was put together, likely by Ezra in about 450 B.C., but it was all together and received as one canonized version of the Old Testament by the time of Christ. Later, the Old Testament would be translated into the Greek language. Now, why is that important? Well, let me ask you this first. Why would there be a need for the Old Testament to be translated into Greek? That's right. Because, you know, as as the the Greek city-states grew and took in more and more areas, and then the Romans come and replaced them... And the Romans established this huge Roman Empire. The Romans took the, the language of the Greeks. So the, the Roman people and their subjects corresponded with one another using the Greek language. There, there wasn't a Roman language. Of course, now we know that there is an Italian, but at that time the Romans borrowed the language of the Greeks. And so, as we've talked about a couple of times, that that language became so important because if you were going to be an educated person, if you were going to sell, if you were going to participate in communications, you had to know Greek. And so, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And it was translated no later than the 100s B.C. 
So we're talking about B.C. before Christ. So about a hundred years before the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, the Old Testament was completely translated into the Greek language by Jewish scholars that lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, if you've studied world history, you know that Alexandria, Egypt was an incredibly important place. It was the most learned place at that point in history. It's where people, if you wanted a solid education and you wanted to sit at the feet of the philosophers and you wanted to read, you went to Alexandria, Egypt. So the scholars were there. And so Jewish scholars in Alexandria translate the Old Testament scriptures into the Greek in what we call the Septuagint. That word Septuagint just simply means 70, referring to the legend that about 70 up to 72 Jewish scholars translated it. Sometimes if you really get fascinated by all this and you really want to do some study on your own, you'll find that some scholars refer to the Septuagint as the LXX. L, you know, using the Roman numerals, L means what? 50. XX means what? 20. So there's the 70. X10, X10, so that's 20. L50, 70. So the Roman numeral for 70. The books are arranged by subject. Starts with history, and then the poetic, and then the prophetic. So history referring to Genesis, you know, through the ancient history of Israel, which would be the books of Joshua, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, probably Esther too. And then from Job down through Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, would be the poetic, and then the rest, the prophetic. So when we start thinking about translation of Scripture, and remember, here's where we're going. I'm going to lead you up. We can't get there tonight unless you want to stay with me till midnight. I'll do that with you if you want to. But I am taking you up to how you and I got an English Bible. That's what I want you to understand. So we're dealing with biblical translation here. So in the whole history of biblical translation, you need to understand that the first thing ever translated would be what we call the Septuagint. And again, that's the translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language. Now, When you think about the Old Testament and its translation and its being brought together as a canon, you have to deal with the Apocrypha. Now, just from things you've talked about and read and studied before, what's the Apocrypha? Any ideas? Yeah, books that didn't make it in, didn't at least make it in to our 66 that we have in English translations of the Bible. But they did make it in to some things. And so we need to talk about this because if you have a conversation with a Roman Catholic friend, you'll probably have to deal with this. And I'll get to this in a moment, but in the Roman Catholic translations of Scripture the Apocrypha, is included. And so you may have heard it said like this before. The Catholics have more books in their Bible than we who are not Catholic have in our Bibles. And so I want to explain that. So the Septuagint, the Septuagint is what? The first translated Old Testament. 
Okay? It was the first effort of taking the Word of God. I really don't want you to miss this. It's the first effort of taking the Word of God, the Old Testament, and putting it into a language that was not Hebrew. Alright? So that's important. When you're thinking about the history of biblical translation, that's very important. So the Septuagint included some Jewish religious writings that would later become known as the Apocrypha that had never been included in the Hebrew and the Aramaic (coughs) scriptures. So there were some certain books that weren't in those Hebrew scrolls. Now remember that. That is how up to and beyond the life of Christ, that's how the temple and the synagogues, that's how they access the Word of God, on scrolls. And the scrolls would be many. So it wasn't like one great big long scroll that would have Genesis all the way through Malachi, but there would be a half Genesis scroll, and then the other half Genesis scroll, and then a half scroll of Isaiah, those longer books like that, and Jeremiah, half a scroll and then another half. The shorter books would be their own scrolls. And so in every synagogue... And that would be the religious, you know, house of learning where the Jews that weren't in Jerusalem would go to to hear the priest proclaim the word of God, etc. They would have, I would just call them cabinets, where these scrolls would be contained. You can read back in their history and the bottom line is none of the Apocrypha was a part of that. That's very important. But that word apocrypha comes from the Greek language and it means hidden or unclear. Today, those books are not included included in our Protestant Bible. Now, I understand there are some New Testament Christians that don't like to refer to themselves as Protestant. I get that. But in a New Testament Bible, not a New Testament, but in a, in a Christian Bible, let me just put it that way, that has the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, you won't find the Apocrypha, although in some of the Orthodox, like the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church, and then in the Roman Catholic Church, in their Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you will find the books of the Apocrypha, evidence derived from the first century A.D. Jewish writers like Josephus. Can I tell you another story? You're getting bored with my lecture, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you this story. <laughs> Josephus was a great ancient Jewish historian. And so, so much of what we know about Jerusalem and Israel from the the time of Christ through the era of the Romans, we know because this man by the name of Josephus Flavius wrote a history of the Jewish people. So, um, back in the day, they've dumbed things down these days and some of these guys don't have to do it anymore, but when... When I was a student working on my master's degree at Southern Seminary, one of the things that we had to do in history was we had to read the works of Josephus. And it was bad, y'all. You know, it was just one of those things you had to do. And so uh, there was a long-standing tradition that I may or may not have participated in that when you finished your reading of Josephus, you went out, if you ever visit the campus of Southern Seminary in Louisville, there's, there's a big lawn that's in the middle and all those buildings face together and this great big lawn about the size of a football field is out in the middle. 
But we called that lawn the Josephus Bowl. And the reason we called it the Josephus Bowl is that when we were done with Josephus, we took our books out there, dug a hole. I didn't say we did. But you dug a hole and you, you buried your book of Josephus. Hence the Josephus Bowl. All right. Don't tell that on me. But Josephus, who was that ancient Jewish scholar and historian, uh, he indicates in his writings, again, that the Hebrew and the Aramaic Bible never included the Apocrypha. So historians that go back toward the first century will all say together, the Apocrypha was never accepted as Scripture by the Israelites or the Hebrews. So, just a word about the Apocrypha. Now, we're bringing it from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and I want to set the stage for where we'll pick up next week with with Jesus. And depending on what scholar you read from, the, the dates of Jesus are somewhere between 4 B.C., in A.D. 33. And here's what we know about Jesus. Just read the Gospels and concentrate on the red letters. If you have a red-lettered edition, you'll find out over and over and over again that Jesus quoted what? Jesus constantly quoted the Old Testament. And He would go so far as to say that He did not come to destroy the Old Testament Scriptures, but to do what? To fulfill it. And my, aren't we thankful that He fulfilled it? Because He fulfilled it, we don't have to. And we really don't even have to make an effort at fulfilling it to earn salvation. But our salvation is given to us by God's grace as we place our faith in the Christ who fulfilled the Old Testament Scripture for us. But he said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So my question then is, does the Old Testament still have its place in the days of the New Covenant. Absolutely, the Old Testament still has its place. What would be its primary role? To point to Christ, and what else? I think I heard you say it. To teach us that we're sinners. I mean, Paul wrote that, that the, the Old Testament is our teacher. And a hard teacher it is. Glory, glory, hallelujah, the teacher whipped me with a ruler. I won't say the rest of it. But those of us that, that grew up in older times, we know what it was like to have tough teachers, right? You know, teachers who would apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. We get it. I've even heard now, I didn't have any teachers like this, but the generation before me, like my parents, would talk about teachers that walk around the room and pop them on the knuckles with a ruler. Can you believe that? Well, that's what the Old Testament does for us. It's our hard disciplinarian teacher. The Old Testament shows us what God's holiness requires and what being righteous mandates, how we must put forth the effort, how we are always compelled and burdened to live under a covenant, how we must always participate in a continuous sacrificial system 
So the Old Testament points us to Christ, but it also shows us as our teacher how we fall so inadequate as we compare our lives to the holiness of God. And then, my friend, it's with that that we we begin to understand how beautiful it is that we live under a new covenant. That again, we had a Savior who fulfilled the demand of the law. So Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He said He didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And so it certainly still has its place in our lives. Jesus said to His disciples in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 44 and 45, He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. We can't address this much, but some of you have probably picked up on when this takes place. Luke chapter 24. Do you remember the setting? So... After the resurrection, you have disciples of Jesus who were walking the road to Emmaus. That's right. And Jesus comes along. And at first they don't recognize Him. But then He begins to talk with them and He begins to teach them. And He opened up, as Scripture says, their eyes and they began to to understand the Scriptures. But... Notice what Jesus says there. He talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms refer to the three sections of the Hebrew Bible as it was organized in the time of Christ. So the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, law of Moses, from that point, the prophets both major and minor prophets. And then the Psalms wouldn't just mean the book of Psalms itself, but all of what we would call the poetry literature, the wisdom literature of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So, these followers of Christ become the human authors of what we call the New Testament, the eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus and their close associates. Uh, Accounts of His life would become what we call the Gospels. They were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the history of the early church, of course, written by Luke, the letters or the epistles to the churches and to individuals written by Paul, Peter, John, and others like James. And then an apocalypse, which is not to be confused with the apocrypha, but an apocalypse that we call the book of Revelation that's written by John. We'll break this down a little more further next week, but I just wanted to introduce it to you. They quote from all but eight of the books found in the Old Testament. So the fullness of the New Testament goes back to the Old Testament as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then down through the book of Revelation go back and they quote all but eight of the books in the Old Testament. The writings became known by the end of the 100s A.D. as the New Covenant or the New Testament. The New Testament or New Covenant refers to what God had promised that Jeremiah wrote about. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, he writes and he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's a beautiful passage. He begins to explain that it'll be different from the old covenant and this new covenant will be written on their hearts. And so the New Testament is the official writings, if you would, of what we call the New Covenant. I'm going to end with this tonight and just give you a very quick chronology of the New Testament. And I promise if you begin to study this, you'll find others, but mine's the best. (laughs) No. Uh, You will find others, but... uh, this is one that, that, that I think is, is really, really hard to beat. I think it's interesting, you know, a lot of times we would just assume because of the way it flows in our New Testaments that the Gospels would have been written first, but really probably the first written book of the New Testament was the book of James. And so James, the half-brother of Christ by that point had become the leader of the Jerusalem church. He writes his epistle somewhere between 45 and 48 in the common era. So in the year 45 up to the year 48. Probably the next is the book of Galatians. And I'm not going to go through each of these one by one. I'm just putting them up there so you can kind of see how it flowed. But Galatians would probably be second. And then if you look down on that left column, one up from the bottom, that's where you find the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. Let me just make a few comments on the gospels and I will show you one more slide and we're finished for the night. But Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is the most concise gospel Mark is a gospel that that focuses on the movement and the actions and the power of the Lord Jesus. A lot of New Testament scholars agree that the book of Mark is very likely the reflections of the apostle Peter. John Mark was with Peter And John Mark wrote it down, but it's quite likely that what he wrote down were the memories of Peter. It makes a lot of sense because, of course, John Mark wouldn't have been there for all those things that are described in his gospel. But Peter obviously would have been. And so for a lot of reasons that we won't get into tonight. If you'd like to know more about it, be glad to have a personal conversation with you. But very likely the Gospel of Mark is the reflections of Peter written first. And then Matthew and Luke would both take the Gospel of Mark, use it sort of as an outline, and then Matthew would add his memories of Jesus and complete some of the stories. And then Luke, being a Gentile physician, a researcher, would come in, have those conversations with people who were with Christ during his time on earth. And then he would write the book of Luke and then follow the book of Luke with the book of Acts. So Luke, the Gentile gospel writer, same writer of the book of Acts, that's happening somewhere in that decade between 60 and 70 A.D. And then it would be quite a bit later that John would come along and write his gospel, probably wrote the book of Revelation first, and then his gospel would have been written somewhere in that decade between 85 and 95 A.D., and then followed by the last three letters, chronologically speaking, which would be 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So that's a sachet from the Old Testament through the New Testament and moving from, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. I will, if you have any questions, I'd be glad to take them very quickly 
before we share prayer requests tonight. Yes. By different individuals? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I know exactly what you're trying to say. So let me give it to you very quickly. Mark, the reflections of Peter, it seems like was written for the Romans. And then uh, Matthew is a very Jewish view of Christ. And so that's why, you know... Exactly. That that's why you find that in the book of Matthew, uh, focusing on this is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And then Luke, being a Gentile, has the Gentile world in view when he writes his gospel. So those are the three different groups for those synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John comes along and John does a very different thing than Matthew, Mark, and Luke does. And John's gospel, written with the world in view, really. Yeah. No, but because when I'm thinking about, you're talking about like a translation of the whole Bible, right? Yeah. But it, it was written, uh, yeah, I don't, um, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I would not recommend any certain translation based on who was probably the original recipient of the gospel. Right. I do. Let's let's talk a little bit after the service. Okay, is that okay? I understand. Yeah, yeah. But but if I understand your your question is 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 there a certain translation? For instance, let's say the Book of Matthew again, which is written by a very Jewish person, Matthew the disciple primarily originally intended for a Jewish audience, is there a particular translation that picks up on that and therefore renders a closer translation maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I would not recommend any certain translation that would do what you're referring to. Yeah, Charles? No, so when Christ quoted the... That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Charles's question is when Jesus would quote the Old Testament, because we've talked about tonight that the Old Testament was translated into the Greek language, the Septuagint, the LXX, did Jesus quote the Septuagint... Or did he quote the Hebrew Bible? He quoted the Hebrew. 
because in his in his normal everyday vernacular in his language that's what he would have spoken so no he 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 wouldn't have quoted it in greek unless he was speaking directly to a bunch of romans and i think it's quite possible that he would have but in everyday normal life in his interactions with first century jews it would have definitely been in their language. Yeah. Anybody else? We're out of time. I hope you guys, I, I know this is a little different, but I, I just want to expose you uh, to, to some material that helps you understand. I just think when we take our English Bibles out and we open them up, we, we take so many things for granted. And what you're going to discover next week is for you to do that, for you to open up or to take out your phone and turn on your English translation of Scripture, I want you to listen to me. People died for that.